Somebody told me once not to put too much information on a slide. <laughs> this is from um, a survey of business executives in uh, four West European countries, the US, Hong Kong and Brazil. 43% uh, of them say they think that they lost business in the last five years to a competitor that paid a bribe. 25% of the UK-based international companies thought the same. Uh, this is supported by a number of other surveys. Of course, there are some problems with survey data, but it seems to be a fairly good indication, uh, particularly if you think that some of these companies might have paid bribes and hence not lost the contract to others who paid bribes. Um, and Ernst & Young in a survey found that one quarter of companies had actually experienced bribery or corruption just in the last two years. So many companies are paying bribes overseas. Second stylized fact, corruption is most uh, prevalent in the sectors that are really critical for those early phases of development. Now, Paul also talked about this. Um, as you can see in this chart, which is coming from the same survey, this is the number of uh, business executives who think that they lost, uh, lost a contract to a, uh, a competitor that paid a bribe in the last five years. So again, more than 50% in the construction uh, and extractive industries sectors. So these are the sectors which are absolutely critical in the early phases of development. Um, you need infrastructure, you also need a healthy workforce, pharmaceuticals are up there. And if corruption is getting entrenched at these early phases of development, um, it's going to be very difficult to get on with the further development. Now, this feeds into the debate on sequencing. Um, and I think uh, we've seen, for example, in Central and Eastern Europe, that one of the first big policy initiatives that Central and East European countries had to do after transition was privatisation. And this was a policy which had a lot of potential for corruption because it was essentially a few people distributing uh, state assets. Um, so you've got something happening at an early phase where there's a lot of potential for corruption. I think it's, that in itself can be quite damaging. And third stylized fact, there's growing pressure on companies to stop paying bribes. Um, first of all, there are more countries adopting anti-bribery laws. 38 countries are now uh, party to the anti-bribery convention from the OECD, although, as Chandu said, implementation is not always... Um, so good. Uh, secondly, the enforcement of those laws has increased dramatically, and the more countries that sign up to these laws, the more countries start to enforce the national laws. Um, and thirdly, the norms have changed, and hence there are new reputational risks for companies to engaging in bribery. And I'm going to show you some evidence for those last two points. So first of all, on enforcement... Uh, this is the number of enforcement actions of anti-bribery laws globally. So the blue line is uh, enforcement in the US of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, and the red line is all others. So you can see how this has really taken off in the last 10 years uh, since the anti-bribery uh, convention. Um, in addition, the penalties have also increased dramatically. Uh, so whereas 20 years ago, if you had a bribery uh, enforcement against you, the, the penalty might not have been that significant, uh, they're now 
really the fines are getting to be much greater. Uh, so I've got, for sake of comparison, a couple of cases for you. This is Goodyear, um, a 1989 case under the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. The blue, uh, tiny blue bit here is the bribe that Goodyear paid. Um, it's actually uh, between 1979 and 1984, bribes paid to Iraqi trading company officials. Um, they got contracts for that, amounting to this much in terms of revenues. We don't know exactly um, what the profit ratio was, but we can assume something like the green line. Um, but the enforcement led to a fine of only $250,000. So that's the tiny little uh, purple bit at the end. So it's not clear that such a small fine had much of a deterrent effect um, back in 1989. But if we look at a case from last year, a uh, fairly similar case, um, ABB, the engineering company based in Zurich. Uh, they paid $1.9 million in bribes to Mexican officials and about 300000 to Iraqi officials. They got contracts worth $104 million in revenues, that's the red line, um, and this was estimated at around $17 million in profits, that's the green. But they ended up paying a total of $58.3 million in fines, disgorgement of profits, and interest. So the fines are becoming quite serious now. Just to give you a UK case, this is maybe in Johnson, the bridge building company uh, that Ian referred to earlier. Uh, they paid bribes to officials in Ghana, Jamaica, and Iraq, totaling just over a million pounds, and one contract's worth around 37 million in revenues. Uh, again, profits, we think, around 3 million. Um, and the fine and penalties, etc., that they originally um, eventually paid come in at six and a half million. Uh, it's not on the scale of some of the recent Foreign Corrupt Practices Act enforcements, but it is safe to say that bribery didn't pay for maybe and Johnson in this case. <coughs> now, quite apart from the fines, uh, bribery scandals are extremely damaging to a company's reputation. Uh, so I just wanted to talk through some of the reputational risks that have come up. And this is really because of how much the norms about corruption have changed in the last 30 or 40 years. Whereas companies used to pay bribes, and you know, if you discussed it over a dinner, ta a dinner table, uh, people might not have thought much of it 30 or 40 years ago, there's now becoming a strong norm against uh, paying bribes. Now, academic efforts to try to measure the reputational damage tend to focus on the market reaction and the share price. Um, now, as Ian's slides showed earlier, there's not always much of a reaction, actually, from the market. Um, there's been some academic research looking at Foreign Corrupt Practices Act announcements uh, over the period 2002 to 2008, where they found that there was a significant loss in the share price in around one-third of cases, but sometimes this was as small as a few percent, ranging up to 45%. Another recent paper looking just at FSA enforcements of all kinds of misconduct uh, found, again, that there's not that much reaction from the market to misconduct, um, particularly if this mis misconduct is seen to mainly affect third parties, um, as corruption typically is. Nevertheless, there's a considerable risk arising from the loss of trust with your business partners. Shareholders are increasingly suing for damages. 
Um, last year in the US, there were 25 shareholder suits filed against companies that had disclosed Foreign Corrupt Practices Act violations. Um, and these cases tend to, be, tend to result in the company paying a settlement in around three quarters of cases. There's also the danger that you just lose sales, uh, that your customers no longer want to buy your product or services uh, because your reputation is sullied. And Arthur Anderson, of course, is the classic example of this following the Enron uh, fiasco. The reputational damage was clearly uh, pretty severe. You might also find that your employees are not happy about the impact on their personal reputation uh, from being associated with uh, a company that's paid bribes, and they might start looking for other jobs. Uh, and you might also find that your creditors uh, regard you as a higher corruption risk and that it becomes more expensive to borrow money. So because of this change in norms, the reputational damage is also becoming, I think, a severe uh, deterrent. But at the same time, you've got this awkward dynamic going on so what I've done on this map is I've put the Transparency International Bribe Payers Index um, onto a map, and I've graded countries red for uh, where the companies of that country are most likely to pay bribes, through orange, yellow, to green being the cleanest. <clears throat> I should note that this is not a good guys versus bad guys thing, because the green countries um, still have a reasonable propensity to pay bribes according to the methodology of the bribe payers index, uh, which I can go into if you want. Um, so what we're basically seeing is that in terms of developing countries, we've got this double shift in that the green countries are becoming greener, but actually it's increasingly the red and orange countries that are investing in developing countries and that are moving into that space. Um, so there's a risk that if you're encouraging, you know, potentially the green countries are sort of getting out of those markets and actually just the red ones are coming in. So I think it's at least worth questioning whether um, we're reducing the supply of bribes in developing countries through anti-bribery laws. Um, and I'm now going to spend the rest of the presentation trying to understand what's happening in the, typically in the Western companies in terms of what their strategy space looks like and how they're making the decision <coughs> about how to respond to anti-bribery laws. And I think there are four main responses. Um, if you imagine a, a spectrum, on the one hand, companies might just decide to... Uh, forget that there's this new law and carry on as before. I'm calling that denial. At the other end of the spectrum, they might think things are now so risky that they get out of the market altogether. And in between, there are a couple of different strategies. One is compliance, and the other is to actually change the business model or structure. So a classic example of denial, I think, is Daimler. Uh, so... Prior to 1998, uh, bribes were legal in Germany, of course. But in 1998, Germany adopted an anti-bribery law. The following year, Daimler adopted an integrity code, but continued to pay uh, hundreds of criminal payments, totaling millions of dollars. In 2004, the SEC began an investigation against it, although as late as 2008, Daimler employees were still paying bribes. 
So four years after the SEC began its investigation, and well after the news had broken of the major Foreign Corrupt Practices Act violations at Siemens, um, another German multinational. In 2010, um, Daimler eventually had to pay 185 million in penalties for FCPA violations. But what was going on, especially why were those employees still paying bribes in 2008? Were they assuming that they weren't going to get caught? Did they just see bribes as a necessary cost of doing business and they didn't know how to do business without paying bribes? Second strategy then is compliance. Uh, this can mean writing company anti-corruption policies, introducing codes of conduct, offering training to employees about how to respond to demands for bribes. And there are just two problems with this. Um, the first thing is it's difficult to get companies to do it properly. So there's a tendency to adopt off-the-peg codes of conduct, which can be pointed to as a defence against the law, but don't really change behaviour. And there are many cases, Daimler included, where companies have some kind of compliance procedure in place, but they're not implementing them properly, and they fall foul of the law anyway. We also saw this with a recent case in the UK regarding the insurance company Aon. So Aon did have risk prevention and anti-corruption systems in place, but the Financial Services Authority found that these were not consistently implemented and that they were inadequately monitored. And this was the basis of the enforcement action, which led to a £5.5 million fine for Aon. The FSA did not establish that Aon had made illegal payments. And a second problem is that it seems that compliance departments often lack clout within the organisation. Uh, the Ernst & Young European Fraud Survey last year noted that 53% of compliance officers had been in their role for fewer than five years, and around 75% of North American compliance officers said that they struggled to demonstrate their value to the organisation. A slightly more comprehensive response is to actually change the way that you do business in those corruption-prone environments. So to return to the Aon case, one of the charges against Aon was that it had used third parties in connection with overseas business. It had made payments to people to introduce them to clients, payments to consultants and co-brokers in Asia and the Middle East. Now, since its FSA enforcement... Aon has actually changed its business model to reduce its risk in this area. So it now has procedures for assessing risk related to the use of agents. And if the country is seen as one that's medium or high risk, um, if, with reference to the TI Corruption Perceptions Index, uh, then the use of agents just to win business is prohibited. And there are various restrictions in place. Now, Aon has effectively cut out the middleman from a number of transactions, and the business hasn't suffered. In fact, it might actually be much more efficient and a much better way of doing business for that part of the business, but prompted by this FSA action. And some research about responses to the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act um, in the US found that 20% of Fortune 500 companies changed the way they used and compensated agents again after the passage of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. Other research looks at entry strategies of companies and finds that companies prefer to enter markets in ways that enable them to exit quickly once there are anti-bribery laws in place. Which brings me to the next 
uh, strategy, which is withdrawal. And a lot of the research on how companies have reacted to the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act concludes that US companies simply withdrew from risky, corruption-prone markets. Uh, so in the five years after the passage of the FCPA, they invested much, US companies invested less in highly corrupt countries than companies from other companies, and they tended to withdraw from joint ventures. We also had a, a concrete case of this recently with Panalpina, uh, a Swiss logistics company, um, which had an expensive FCPA enforcement and subsequently just withdrew entirely from Nigeria. Now, this suggests that a lot of companies assume that they just can't do business in a certain environment without paying bribes, or it's not worth doing business in that environment if they can't pay bribes and be assured of whatever advantages that, that wins them. And hence, they're deciding that their best option is simply to withdraw. And the question is just whether this is necessarily better for the development of a country or not. So I have three suggestions about conditions for success for anti-bribery laws if the aim is to reduce the supply of bribes in developing countries. The first is that it's really important that foreign companies are pursued under national anti-bribery laws. So this goes back to the extraterritoriality. It's important that the UK um, Bribery Act doesn't just lead to UK-based companies. I mean, there has to be, they have to be carrying on business in this country for there to be jurisdiction. But I think it's very important that those foreign companies are also pursued um, Secondly, we need continued pressure on countries to accept and implement the Anti-Bribery Convention and the UN Convention Against <coughs> Corruption. These are not perfect, but these are good steps towards making the regulation of bribery global. Um, and thirdly, we need to encourage companies to consider those options between denial and withdrawal. We need to encourage them to consider how they can actually change the way they do business so that they avoid corruption risks. Um, and this might even be beneficial to them. The companies that are ahead of the game on this and do fundamental reforms in the way they do business may find that they're coming out ahead of their competitors, free from the burden of having to pay bribes and more efficient for it. Um, and the sexual standards initiatives um, are also very important in this regard, I think. So to, just to go back to Lord Patton's uh, characterization of bribery as a poisonous weed. I think we need to be careful that we don't just pull the weeds out and leave space for new weeds to grow, but we need to make sure we're planting new crops in their place. Yeah. <laughs>